Well, in a moment, we're going to be reading from 1 Kings chapter 15. So if you have a Bible, you want to open that up and you're prepared to read with us in a moment. 1 Kings chapter 15. We are in the season of graduations. And uh, some of you, no doubt, have seen the YouTube that has been going around of a commencement uh, address that took place at Wellesley High School by David McCullough. Uh, He is the son of the kind of famous author that's uh, written a number of important works. And uh, it was, I think, one of the best commencement addresses I have ever, ever, ever heard. How many of you heard it this week or last week? You saw it on YouTube? Yeah, maybe uh, 15, 20 percent of you. So I, I want to share just a little excerpt of it with you because of how appropriate it is, not only for this season of commencements and uh, graduations, but for what we're talking about today. Uh, so as he's addressing this group of high school graduates, uh, of which he's a part of the faculty there, he said, Commencement is a time when those graduating all wear the same shapeless robe and the same strangely shaped hat, whether scholar or slacker. Everyone appears the same today, just as it should be, because none of you is special. Despite what your soccer trophy suggests or the purple dinosaur or Mr. Rogers say of you or your baddie Aunt Sylvia's contention, You are not special. Yes, you've been pampered, coddled, doted upon, helmeted, bubble wrapped. Loving adults have held you, kissed you, wiped your mouth, wiped your bottom, trained you, tutored you, taught you, coached you, counseled you, listened to you, encouraged you and consoled you. You have been nudged, cajoled, needled and implored, fretted and fawned over and even called sweetie pie. Yes, you have. And certainly we've been to your games, your plays, your recitals, and your science fairs. Smiles ignite when you walk into the room and hundreds gasp with delight at your every tweet. (laughs) Maybe you've even had your picture in the paper, and now you've conquered high school. But do not get the idea that you are anything special. Because you're not. The empirical evidence is everywhere. About 3.2 million high school seniors are graduating about now from 37,000 high schools. That's 37,000 valedictorians. 37,000 class presidents. 92,000 harmonizing altos. 340,000 swaggering jocks. But let's not limit it to high school. Even if you are one in a million, on a planet of 7 billion people, that means there are at least 7,000 other people just like you. And I'll remind you that our planet is not the center of our solar system. Our solar system is not the center of our galaxy. Our galaxy is not the center of the universe. Astrophysicists assure us there is no center to the universe. Therefore, you cannot be it. (laughs) Neither can Donald Trump and some what you're telling. Now, that is just like two minutes of a super address, and I I commend it to you uh, to go and find that, do a search, and uh, enjoy that. But here's the takeaway that's relevant to our hour together. 
If you've been around church very much, maybe maybe you were raised in a uh, Christian family, you have heard in this place, or maybe you've heard in your family hundreds, if not thousands of times, God loves you. God has a great plan for your life. God wants to bless you. God has purposes that are eternal, that He invites you to engage and to live. God wants to forgive you. God wants to save you from condemnation. God wants to make you His very own son or daughter by adoption. God wants to prepare a place for you in heaven for all eternity to come. And all of that is true. And I believe all of that with all of my heart. But it does not mean that you or I am special. What it means is that God is special. How magnanimous, how big, how great, how awesome, how mercy-filled, how grace-filled is a God who would pursue you or me. It's because of His greatness, His specialness, that we get to enjoy, get to have the privilege of a relationship with Him. Well, that's a lesson that some that we're going to be reading about over the next couple of weeks didn't get. Now, for those of you that have been tracking with us, we are in a Read Through the Bible campaign. It started in January. It will end in December. And when it's all said and done with a little bit of reading, 15, 20 minutes a day, across the year, we'll have read the entire Bible. And right now, we're about to enter a section called The Kings and the Chronicles. And some of you are a little bit ahead and you're like, hey, yeah, yeah. Yes, it is history, and it is a little cyclical and a little repetitive, and you're going, why? Why is all this here? Why am I pouring through it in these daily readings? We're going to talk about why. (laughs) But let me give you some quick catch-up, because you'll want to get things in perspective as to what you're reading about over these next uh, couple of weeks. And I'll start back with Abraham. So God chooses a man named Abraham... Not because Abraham is special. There's nothing special about Abraham. God chooses Abraham because God has a special plan that he wants to enact. And he says, I'm going to do it with Abraham. And he makes a covenant with Abraham. So it's like this contractual agreement. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to do all kinds of things in your life and through your life and through your descendants so that your descendants will become a great nation and that nation will be my people. And and my people will carry out my purposes in this world. Namely, I want to redeem this world. I want to save people who are disconnected from me, who are in a captivity to fallenness and to slavery. And that's all going to happen through your descendants, Abraham. Will you believe that? He said, I believe it. And so he enters into this covenant relationship with God. Through the course of time, the Hebrews, the people of God, end up in captivity in Egypt where they are slaves. And God hears their cries and he decides to set them free and he taps a man who is not special. Just somebody God wants to use. His name is Moses. 
And he says, Moses, I've got this job for you. You go tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, probably the most powerful man on the planet. You go tell him, let God's people go. And Moses said, I know I'm not special. <laughs> I'm not up for this job. You got the wrong guy. And he has this whole list of excuses about why he can't do it. And God says, what's that in your hand? And he said, well, that's a rod. He goes, well, as you have shepherded flocks, I'm going to have you shepherd my people. You go and you say to Pharaoh, let my people go. So he does. They escape Egypt. A lot of uh, wondrous, miraculous things that take place. You've read all of that. They go across the wilderness. They enter a promised land. They conquer it. It becomes their own. But at this point, they are still just a loosely gathered group of 12 different tribes. Until you get to a monarchy that results in a united kingdom. Saul, David, and Solomon unite these 12 tribes into one great nation of millions. And uh, it becomes rather noteworthy, not only in its day, but we're still talking about it today. Well, after Solomon, the kingdom begins to unravel and fall apart. And so we enter this period of divided kingdom. Ten tribes in the north pull off from two tribes in the south. The northern tribes continue to carry the name Israel. The southern tribes carry the name Judah. And when we start reading about them across the books of Kings and Chronicles, we will be reading about various scenarios and episodes that were taking place during that period of the divided kingdom. Some 20 northern kings, Israelite kings, and some 20 southern kings or Judean kings. And most of them are really bad guys. And so we're talking today about how you how do you get wisdom, the wisdom of God from evil kings, because that's what we're going to see over and over again uh, play out in these guys lives. Ultimately, where it's all headed is the northern kingdom is going to fall in 722 to Assyria. And then the southern kingdom is going to fall in 587 to Babylon. And that's stories to come. But that kind of catches it up to what we're talking about today. So if you have first Kings 15 open. You want to take a look with me at just a little brief reading that we'll do, picking up in verse 1. Now, in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nabar, Abijam began, began to reign over Judah, and he reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Makkah, the daughter of Abishalom, and he walked in all the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. So here you go. As we read king after king after king after king, immediately after being introduced to the king, guess what we see? Their report card. You get the name, and then within a verse or so, it will say, and this guy did not follow in the ways of God. Or this guy did follow in the ways of the Lord. Uh, look with me down to verse 9. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa began to reign over Judah. And he reigned for 41 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Micah, the daughter of uh, Abishalom. And Asa did what was right 
in the eyes of the Lord as David, his father, had done. And you move on down to uh, verse 26. You get the next report on the next king, and we could go on. And for chapter after chapter, you'll read about a king, you'll get his report card, and then you'll see episodes of what he did or did not do for the Lord. So there was about 20 kings in Israel. Every one of them was a bad king. Every one of them was idolatrous. Every one of them led God's people astray. In the southern kingdom of Judah, there were about 20 kings. Eight of them were good. And they're exceptional because there's such a line of bad ones. And so you'll, you'll enjoy getting to read a little bit about their lives. And the rest of them were evil or bad. So what do we lift out of these stories? You're going to be reading for the next couple of weeks. What are we to make of all that? Let me just tease out four things that I think are important for our consideration. The first is this. God gives us stewardship. Now, stewardship is one of those words that is not used as much today as in a former day. So think about it this way. Everybody knows what a business manager is. A business manager is a person who has been entrusted by another with resources, whether it's personnel or raw material, or money. He's been entrusted with resources to carry out a project that will produce a product or a service, some such thing. And at some point, the person that has entrusted these things to the business manager will be checking in with him to see how it's all going, right? That's stewardship. And what we are to understand is that God gave these kings stewardship. He said, I want you to lead my people. I want you to lead them in my ways, in my will, just like the parents today had committed about their families. He said, I want you to do that for the nation. Because this nation is my people. I have plans for my people. I have purposes for my people. And I want you to lead them in these certain kinds of ways. And... Their stewardship primarily was to govern people in a way that extended God's kingdom, the influence of God, the rule of God, the reign of God. It's not so much a geographic thing. Extend God's kingdom and exalt God's name so that more and more and more and more and more people could know who is the God that reigns in Israel. He's the God of the world. He's the God of the universe. So that was their stewardship. And the reason why we tease that out for ourselves is because we've been given a stewardship. We're told in Psalm 24, 1 and 2, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded upon the seas and established upon the rivers. In other words, God owns everything. He owns every. You, you never touch ground that he doesn't own. You never experience anything tangible in this world that he doesn't own. You don't even breathe air that he doesn't own that air. And he has, out of his grace, allowed us to use his world, his stuff, his resources for high holy purposes. You see this all the way back in Genesis, chapter one, verse twenty-eight tells us God blessed them that early couple. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue and rule over 
the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every living thing that moves or creeps on the earth. He entrusted humanity from day one to begin to subdue and rule over the rest of his creation. So it's a, a shared ruling with the king, God. And then we're told in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it, to keep it. In other words, there was a stewardship there. So that's one thing that we want to tease out of all these stories about these kings. God gives people responsibility. God gives people stewardship. And that includes you and that includes me. The second thing that you want to tease out of this uh, reading that we'll do over these weeks is that God is very attentive to our stewardship. He really pays attention. God is a God of detail, and it just constantly blows my mind. Seven billion people on the planet, and He knows thoroughly everything about every person, every thought, every motivation, every appetite. We're told that in Psalm 147.4, He counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Hundreds of billions of stars. Knows every one of them. Named every one of them. We're told in the New Testament that not even a sparrow can fall to the ground without God knowing it. And we're told that He is so familiar with you, he He knows the number of hairs on your head. Metaphorically, just to say, I know everything there is to know about you. He is very, very attentive to you and the way you steward life. Now, what kind of stewardship has He given you? If you're married, you have a stewardship over that relationship. If you're a parent, you have a stewardship over your children and the parenting of those children. If you have a job, you have a stewardship within that employment that's not just to your boss. It's way beyond your boss. It's unto God. We're told in the scriptures that all of our work is supposed to be done unto him. So forget company standards and and, and goals and and, uh, values and things like that. It all supersedes that to please God. If you have a circle of friends... If you are given some kind of open door and an opportunity, stewardship, 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 you're responsible for it all. And God pays close attention to how you're handling it. Which leads me to say in the third place, He also holds us accountable. It matters how well you love your spouse. Not just to your spouse. It matters to God. It matters how you parent your children. It matters how you do that job. It matters how you seize the day. As McCollum goes on to say in his commencement address, carpe the heck out of the diem. (laughs) Seize the day. Grab it. It all matters. It's all accountable. The... The story that uh, we are introduced to in the opening verses of Genesis with Adam and Eve. You remember what happens there? After some period of 
incredible fellowship and intimacy with the Lord. You know, they eat the forbidden fruit. They get sideways with God. They find out that they've sinned, that they've rebelled. They go hide. And God says to them, where are you? Now, God hadn't lost them. He didn't know. It wasn't a matter of him not knowing where they were. That's that's a moment of accountability. Why are you hiding from me? What have you done? Do you understand what you have done? Just a few chapters over, when we are introduced to their children, Cain and Abel, they get sideways with each other and Cain kills his brother. And God comes to Cain and says, where is your brother? It's not a matter of God not knowing where Abel was or what had happened. It's a moment of accountability. What have you done to your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? Uh-huh. There was, a, there was an accountability. There was a stewardship there. The whole thing with Abraham and Sarah, right? We just introduced or reminded you about their whole covenant that they had with God. He was going to bring this great nation from them. But they hadn't had the first child after all these years. And God shows up one day and says, now you're going to have the child. Now you're going to conceive. They're very, very old at that point. Sarah's kind of sneeringly laughing about it. Well, yeah, now we get to have the baby, you know. And God asks, is anything too difficult for the Lord? That's a moment of accountability. Do you believe me or not? Are you going to continue to move forward in this covenant or not? And then, of course, Moses that I just described. And he's like, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't be the deliverer that you're asking me to be. What's that in your hand? Well, of course, God knows he's got a rod or a staff, a stick. But what you've been doing with flocks, I'm going to now have you do with people. You're going to shepherd my people out of captivity and into a new chapter in our relationship. God holds us accountable. And blessed are you when you discern and perceive the questions that God is asking you. Where are you? What are you doing? How's this going? Is this in keeping with what I've been asking you to do? Sometimes those questions happen in gatherings just like this. Friends, those are grace moments that God would intervene with a moment of accountability because there's an ultimate accountability that you want to be prepared for. And so these little accountable moments in between now and then, you want to seize the heck out of that that day. Maximize it by the grace of God. The last thing I'll say to you about all this is that God does judge. The Bible makes it clear from beginning to end. He judges those that live it well. And out of that judgment comes reward. And He judges those who do it poorly. And out of that comes recompense. And sometimes the judgment happens, boom, right now. You did something, boom. There's a reaction that God brings right now. And then sometimes God judges later. And it almost looks like because of the period of time that goes... You might have gotten away with it. But friend, we never get away with anything. 
out of His mercy, out of His grace, He establishes a relationship with us. He calls us to high holy purposes. It matters that we live. It matters how we live. And all of that is settled into an account someday. So as you read through these stories about these kings, you're going to come to like the baddest one of them all, Ahab. And his wicked wife Jezebel. A lot of stories around that whole scenario. Uh, But let me just finish it with this. Uh, Later in his reign, Ahab decides to fight Syria or the Arameans. And he has tried a couple of times and didn't have the kind of results he wanted. So he goes to their cousins in Judah to Jehoshaphat, the king there, and says, will you join me in this battle against the Arameans? Jehoshaphat is a good king. He's one of the few good kings. And he's praying about it, and he's not sure he should do this. And so he says, you've got a prophet that can you know, help us discern the will of God about all this. He brings in like 400 prophets, Ahab does. Well, they're all false prophets. And they're all saying, oh, you're going to have a great victory. Your name's going to be spread. Your fame's going to be, you know... And, and Jehoshaphat hears this false prophecy time and time and time again. And he goes, do you not really have a man of God here? you got one prophet that will really speak the word of God to us. And Ahab goes, well, there's one guy. I hate him. He always prophesies against me. <laughs> yeah, go figure. And so they bring Micaiah in. And sure enough, what's, what's say, what says the Lord about us going into battle? And he goes, you're going to be killed. And uh, your reign and your life are over now. Well, Ahab's attendants start pounding him in the face. They haul him off to jail. He actually says the wrong thing, you know, before the king. And inexplicably, uh, Jehoshaphat will get chastised about this later, but inexplicably he says, okay, I'll go into battle with you. So they get ready to go into battle with the Arameans. And, and Jehoshaphat, you have to remember, he's a good king. He walks in the ways of God, but sometimes good people who are walking in the ways of God, who are seeking to glorify God, do stupid things. Sometimes we do. Amen? Yeah. Yeah. Somebody's waving at me. I know you do. And so, when they get ready to go into battle, Ahab says, hey, let me tell you what, Jehoshaphat. Usually, we go into battle with our kingly robes, but today... Why don't you just wear the kingly robe? I'm going to go as a common soldier. Okay? So, meanwhile, the enemy forces are saying, we don't care about any of their soldiers. You just get Ahab. And when you see the kingly robes, you bypass everybody. You just go and kill Ahab. Well... The battle begins. They start fighting with one another. They're making their way through the soldiers. They see the kingly robes of Jehoshaphat. And when they get up close, they go, wrong king. And they can't find Ahab. And so, literally, the text says in Second Chronicles 18, that an Aramean soldier randomly shot an arrow at the Israelite troops. Randomly. And it... Comes down and it not only hits Ahab, who is who knows where in hiding, 
it not only hits him, it goes right between the crack in his armor. You know, they have layers of armor. It goes right into the crack and kills him. Which the biblical writer wants you to understand, God did that. He takes that random arrow and he guides that missile as an act of judgment upon arguably the most wicked king in Israel history. All of that to say this. Your life matters. There's an accountability. God judges both the right and the wrong. He's prepared to reward and to take out recompense. Now, some of you may have also noticed in the news this past week that it was the 50th anniversary of a supposed escape from Alcatraz. Did you see that story? I just found it fascinating. How many of you have been around and seen Alcatraz, either from distance or you went out on the island? So, you know, it's this, uh, about a mile and a half off of San Francisco, out in the middle of the water, and it was supposed to be inescapable. Nobody could ever escape Alcatraz. Well, there's these three guys that you're looking at who might have. You know, back in the 60s, they uh, had dug a tunnel with spoons, and they had created these little dummies of themselves and put it in their bed. They made a whole movie of it. And uh, one night they get out. They made a raft out of uh, raincoats. And most speculated that once they got out into the icy waters of San Francisco Bay, they probably went on out into the Pacific and died. But a few have wondered, they've pondered through the years, did these guys make it? Did they really escape? And a rumor began to develop through the years that on the 50th anniversary, these guys who escaped were going to be coming back and letting the world know, here we are. You know, there'll be 80 something, but they wanted the world to know they escaped. So, no kidding, on the 50th anniversary of their alleged escape, everybody shows up at Alcatraz. Did you see that in the story this past week? And the media's there, and family members are there. Everybody's wondering if these guys are going to be showing up 50 years later. You know who else was there? U.S. Marshals. <laughs> It wasn't going to happen without the marshals there to make an arrest. Now, nobody showed up. They probably did die. They probably didn't escape. That's not as good a movie as the other movie. But here's the point, friends. You don't get away with anything. I don't care if it's been 50 years. God's there. And if there's anything, if there's any wisdom that we glean from wicked, evil kings, it's this. God gives you stewardship. He pays attention to it. He holds you accountable. There is a day where all those books are settled. The accounts are settled. So how's life? How are you doing with all that? Are you finding grace and power and help to be faithful in the journey? Here's where all this has been leading to today. I'm asking you, by the grace of God, will you acknowledge you're not so special, but He is? Will you acknowledge His greatness? And worship Him only. It wasn't like the kings just said there is no God. 
It wasn't like they had suddenly become agnostic or atheistic. It was like they said, you know, we uh, esteem Lord Jehovah God, but we also uh, have some interest in what it goes on over here with Baalism and all these other false deities and the Ashtaroth and so on like that. And they syncretized. The Bible calls it idolatry, where you make much out of things that are not God. And so he says, will you worship me only? Your spouse is not going to be up that high. Your children are not going to be up that high. Your money or your possessions are not going to be up that high. Your career or your accomplishments are not going to be that high. Everything is a distant second to God. Will you acknowledge His greatness and worship Him only? And will you acknowledge your stewardship and follow Christ faithfully? This is a little check-in. This is God talking with Adam and Eve, Canaan, and the whole scenario around Abel. This is Him checking in on Abraham and Sarah, Moses, you. Me. Let's pray. Father, it's been a divine appointment. You've had very important things to address our hearts about today. And so we don't take it lightly that you would come in and make yourself known, spend time with us in this kind of way. God, I pray that we steward well this time of interacting with you. That it not be forgotten the minute we walk out of here with the activities of the afternoon. God, you are great. You are good. There is none other like you. And we will only give our heart and our allegiance and our worship to you. And we pray that by the atoning life of Jesus.